Let's just start today with reading the Easter account and what happened. I thought I would read it from the, the perspective and the account from someone who was there. And so this is from John. I'm in John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. You see, that's how John always refers to himself, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. See, once again, they're still not getting it. They're, they're anxious. They're worried. Oh, it's gotten even worse. The body's even been taken now. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That passage right there tells me that this is a 100% true account of what happened. Because John, even in recording about the resurrection of Christ, he still wants to keep the fact in there that he outran Peter to the tomb. So that's just, that's just guy pride right there. And, and John's just like, oh, by the way, yeah, I outran him. Um, I beat him there. So that tells me this is real. And stooping to look in, uh, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And then on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is the account of Easter Sunday. This is the good news. This is what changed the world. This changed all of history from this point forward. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a perfect sinless life, came and he died on a cross. That's what we, we looked at at our Monday, Thursday service. That's what uh, we reflected on, on on Good Friday, is Jesus' death. And in that death, he was a sacrifice. He was a sacrifice that paid the price for us. He paid the price for our sin, the price that we owe so that we could be forgiven. And we know that that payment was received and marked paid in full by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. There is no more debt. He has paid it. He has paid it on our behalf. And that is the good news. That is why we get to celebrate Easter. He is alive and he has defeated death. And so I encourage you today that maybe if, if that truth has never really permeated your life, if that's never become something that's real to you, if you've, you've never uh, placed your faith in him to believe in him, then you can do that today, right now. You can ask him to be your Lord and Savior. You can tell him, yes, Lord, I believe that, that what you did is true. I believe that what this says is true. And I believe that you did rise from the dead and that in that you can forgive me. In that you can make me right with God. And so, that's the Easter story. And that's the introduction to our sermon for today, which is from Hebrews chapter 6. And I was telling our elders this week that uh, um, if I were just to be picking a passage of Scripture to preach for Easter Sunday, um, this would probably be my very last choice um, out of every passage of scripture in the whole Bible. Um, but I am committed to what we do here, where we work through uh, the scripture together, and we've been working through Hebrews, and it's in God's sovereignty that we hit this passage on Easter Sunday. And as I was starting to work on it, I was like, oh boy, this is going to be fun. Um, and, uh, and even as I you know start reading my commentaries and studying and everything, uh, the commentators one after another, saying, this is the hardest passage in Scripture to understand. Um, this is the, one of the most troubling passages of Scripture. Uh, this is a very challenging passage of Scripture. <laughs> and so, uh, so with that, um, I just want to say, are you excited um, to jump into this with me? Uh, because as I did dig into it more, I saw that, wow, this really is an Easter passage. This passage of Scripture is only difficult and only challenging if you try to take it on without understanding Easter. Easter gives full perspective to it. Easter explains it all. Um, It makes it so clear. And so so as we dig into it today, I want us to dig into it with the open eyes and the open hearts of Jesus rose from the dead. And in that, there is hope, and there is assurance, and there is peace, and there is forgiveness. And that is where we find ourselves today, is remembering all of that. So we're in Hebrews chapter 6. I think I probably have your attention now. But Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4. 
For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And so, like I said, this is a very challenging passage, and this is one um, in which uh, there has been much debate um, ever since it was first written. Um, There has been tons of debate over this passage. In fact, when the early church under the the leadership of the Holy Spirit was coming together to finalize the New Testament, finalize saying which books um, are really from God, um, what are the things that need to be included in what we now have as the Bible, Hebrews was heavily debated, primarily for two reasons. One was this passage, and a second was we don't really know who the author is. And for those two reasons, this book was heavily debated on whether it should be a part of the Bible. But under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, they came together and they said, you know what, this is the word of God. This is truth. And so we need to dig into this and understand it because it is God's word. And so that means it's ethical for us. And this is a a stark warning here. I mean, this this is a get your attention kind of warning um, about your life on what the author is saying here. Um, you know, and so what in really understanding this, the key is trying to figure out who it is that this is talking about, because if you take out that part and you just put the parts together, it says, for it is impossible, um, let's skip down, uh, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, the son of God for their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And then in the middle, he describes who this group is that he's talking about. And so who is this group? And throughout history, there's been tons of different opinions. There's been, uh, you know, like if we, if you were to read everything that's ever been written on this topic, specifically relating to this verse, you would be reading for a very, very long time. Um, and there are lots of different opinions. Um, but I, I basically summarized those opinions into three different options this morning. Um, three different umbrellas that this can fall under. And the first option is that this passage is saying that Christians can fall away from salvation, and when they do so, they cannot return. And that is heavy. Um, And honestly, as far as just a straight reading of the passage... that's probably the option that makes the most sense. And if you just, if all you had was this passage of scripture and you read it and you said, what does this mean? You would probably come up with that option. It's also a very depressing option because it puts a lot of pressure on us to perform in order to try to maintain our salvation, which what other places in scripture all point to is the fact that salvation is by grace alone. That, that means when we get it and how we maintain it. It's by God's grace. It's a gift. What God did in Jesus on Easter was a gift. It wasn't something that we earn. It wasn't something that we, we have to be good enough or we have to check off enough boxes in order to do. 
And then what's really, really bleak out of this perspective is the fact that just in this straightforward reading, you would have to say that if that's the way you understand what this passage is saying, you'd have to say for someone that has done that, then there's no hope for them. They cannot return to Christ. And that is a very bleak, sad place. And while this is a straightforward reading and understanding of what maybe this passage is saying, the problem with it is, is that understanding stands in stark contrast to the rest of Scripture. Um, it stands in, in major contrast to what, what Scripture says every, uh, elsewhere. And so, uh, as this has come up before in Hebrews, we've already looked back and we looked at, at, at John, uh, John chapter 10. Um, and that's one of my favorite passages on this subject where Jesus is talking about he's the good shepherd and he calls his sheep to himself. And those who are his are secure in the Father's hand and nobody can rip them away. But we've already looked at that passage, so we won't go there today. Um, but I thought, hey, what? that's John. He was one of the two that ran to that tomb. That's what he said about this topic. That's how he understand, understood Easter applied to this as he was quoting what Jesus had taught him. Well, what did that other guy that ran to the tomb, what did Peter say about this? What did Peter say on this topic? The other guy that was there and that Jesus did so much through and he understood what Jesus meant so well. Well, in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the message of Easter. Let's go back and read that again, because that's so important. He has caused us to be born again. That's what we're talking about. That's how it means you're a Christian. You're born again. Something's new. You've been made new, and it's done by him causing that in us. It's not by us achieving it. It's not by us being good enough, but it's him working that in us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where all of our hope is found, is in Jesus, what he's done. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. For by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So how does, how does Peter describe our salvation? He describes it as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. He doesn't say, hey, you really better make sure you're good enough to hold on to it. He doesn't, he doesn't include any of that. No, he puts it all in God's hands, and he says that it's by God's power that it's being, being, it's being guarded. God's power is guarding our salvation for those of us who are in Christ. The same way in John 10, it said that, that, that Jesus has us in his hand. Also planned uh, to go to, to Romans and see what Paul said adding on to this. Yeah, we're doing okay on time. Let's go there. By the way, we're going to run out of time. But, so I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to cut as I go but we will just see how it goes. But we're in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will not he also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's people, those of us who are his, those of us who have been saved, those of us who are secure in him? Who's going to bring a charge against us? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is something we've been seeing through Hebrews as we've looked at what Jesus is doing for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or if I can add, the coronavirus? What can separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is nothing. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the unifying message of, of especially the New Testament, is that when you are in Christ, you are secure. You are there. He is protecting you. The same power that raised him from the dead, that gave you new life, is the same power that holds you there. It's the same power that, that, that secures you. So, how do we understand this passage in Hebrews in light of that? Well, let's go to option two. Option two, some that have have faced this uh, comparison. Uh, Option two is that the author here is just using hypothetical scenario um, that cannot really happen in order to get his reader's attention. Uh, And so this is one option that some have put forward for understanding this passage. Like, yes, technically Christians can't really fall away permanently from Christ. um, But in order to encourage uh, people to live the way that they should and not to take his grace for granted, the author uses this kind of language. And I want to tell you, this is a stark warning and if you are someone who is taking God's grace for granted, you need to be warned to stop it. If you are abusing his grace, what I mean by that, you say you're a Christian, but you don't live like it. You say you're a follower of Christ, but you're not walking with him. Then you need to change. So hear that warning from this passage. But I cannot say that I think that option two is the right interpretation of this passage, because what that would be saying is that, in essence, the author is being dishonest. And in that, I believe, as this is scripture, that the Holy Spirit guided every word that's in here. And that would mean, if I take this option, that would mean that the Holy Spirit is being dishonest with us. And that would mean that God is lying to us. And so, therefore, I think we can quickly uh, debunk this option and move on. So option number three is, is that the author is continuing to address issues with those who were considered Christians, 
but in actuality never really were. And this is something that we've seen as we've gone through Hebrews, and that's why it's so good for us uh, to take the approach to Scripture that we do, where we work through it consecutively, uh, where we're seeing his full argument, right? Because if you just come to this verse by itself, as we've done today at the start of this sermon, then it's really more standalone, and it's, it's easier uh, to maybe fall into that first option. But maybe if we go back and we look at what he's been saying leading up to this, we might understand it better. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So how do we know that we're in his house? We hold fast our confidence and our boasting in his hope. Then down in verse 14, it says this. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So he's saying, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're saved? It's because you're sticking with it. You stick with it to the end. That's how you can know that you're secure in Christ. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, we can still have hope in him. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So he's saying, hey, these people have heard the truth. They have heard the gospel, but they have not been united by faith with those who have really heard it. They haven't been joined to us. They're still separate from us. They might have even shown some signs of spirituality. They might have even made statements or made professions that, that would have indicated that, that they were with us. They might have even held roles or positions among us that would make one think that they were with us, but yet they, it wasn't real. And so maybe when we bring that background in and come back to verse 4 here, And we look at the descriptions that he uses here to describe this group of people. One thing I think is very important for us to note here is that this list of descriptions, nowhere in Scripture is this list um, or even these individual things used to signify this is someone who has been justified by God. Nowhere. When we read it together on just a cursory reading, it sounds like that. But maybe if we read it a little bit deeper, we might can say, understand it to mean, yeah, these are people that maybe were kind of exposed to the gospel. They were kind of around the gospel. They kind of were around Christians, but they were never really fully in. So let's look at the list again and see if you can go there with me on understanding this passage in that way. In the case of those who have been enlightened, they had understanding. They had intellectual knowledge of the truth. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. They've had a taste. They've had a taste of the goodness of God. They've had a taste um, of the, the story of Easter. They might be someone who shows up for church every Easter because they've had a taste for it. And they feel like that's something that I should do. And have shared in the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, and they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
but they have shared in the Holy Spirit. What, is that, what could that mean? That could just mean that they have benefited from the goodness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work is fast, vast beyond just the body of Christ. In fact, he works through us, through those of us um, that have him in order to help others. And so just saying that they've shared in the gift of the Holy Spirit doesn't make them Christians. And they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've even dug into his word. They've tasted. They've said, yeah, this is good stuff. This is truth. They might be able to recite it. They might, they might even at times have taught it. And they've tasted of it, but it hasn't been real to them. And the powers of the age to come, they know that there is hope for us. They know the story of Easter. They know that Jesus rose from the dead. They know that he ascended into heaven. And they know that he's coming back for those who belong to him. But yet, they have fallen away. And he says that it's impossible here to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So what's the real problem here? First, I don't know if I ever said completely what option three is. Option three is the author has continued to address those who are considered Christians, but in actuality never really were. But what we're seeing as we look at the totality of Scripture here is that most likely that is what is going on here. Because those who belong to Christ continue to the end. That's what he said back in 3.14. Another thing that John said, you know, that guy, that the disciple whom Jesus loved that outran Peter. He said this. They went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They went out from us because they're not of us. And so, does that mean that this group is hopeless? Does that mean that there is no hope for this group? I don't think so. Because what he's saying is impossible here is the fact that since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to a contempt. You see, what they're doing is they're repeating Easter all over again. They're saying the original Easter, the original cross, the original sacrifice, the original Jesus raising from the dead was not sufficient. And they're throwing more harm on Christ. They're making, making him out... Uh, to be a liar. They're defaming the gospel. And that is where it is impossible for them to find repentance. But as he said back up in in chapter 5 and verse 12, they need once again to have the basic. They they need the basics taught to them again. Again, you need the basic principles of the oracles of God. They need to go back to the Easter message and they need to have that truth told to them once again because it hasn't really become real yet. And so maybe you're watching this today, and all of this can really seem to be just some kind of intellectual theological exercise. But my heart is, and I know this is the truth, and the reason this has been such a hotly debated and contended subject throughout history is because this isn't just intellectual, this isn't just theological, this is personal. This is personal because as we, those of us who are following Christ, as we read this, we know those who have seemed to fall away. We love people 
who we have seen at one point they had tasted of the heavenly gift. They seemed to be a part of us, but now they're not. And that's personal. And that's hard. And so what is this passage saying in that situation? I think you look at the totality of it and it's saying we need to take the gospel back to them once again. We need to continue to pray for them. We need to continue to lift them up to the Lord and we need to continue to share with them. Because that is the good news of the gospel and that's the power of Christ and that's the power of his resurrection. Verses 7 and 8 here really affirm to me that this is the option that this author was talking about. The option three it says for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and in its end is to be burned. So what's he saying there? He's saying you've got land. Okay. I'm seeing a big uptick this year on what it looks like on the number of people planning to grow their own food. Um, It seems like everybody's really interested in this with everything that's going on in the world. But imagine you go and you put the seeds out, right, for whatever you're planting. Then you water it. And then up grows thorns. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to eat thorns. That, that doesn't sound very scrumptious. Now, a nice juicy tomato, that sounds great. Thorns, not so much. Thistles, no thank you. And so what the author is saying here is he's comparing this to the gospel. He's saying, hey, the gospel has been planted in people's lives. They've had the truth. For some of us, that is growing up and bearing fruit now that's being watered. And we can know that that is genuine and that is from God. And we can know that the the Easter story is real there. The resurrection's power is in that person and it is producing good things. But others have had that same seed planted in them. And when when they've been watered, all that's come out are thorns and thistles. That means that the seed never really took root. It was never really real in their life. And so for that person, I encourage you that Jesus can pull away the thorns. He can get rid of the thistles. He can strip all of that out of your life and he can still use his gospel to grow good things in you. And so if that is you today, and this is personal to you because maybe you had a history uh, with the church or maybe you had a history uh, with the gospel a long time ago, and now all of a sudden maybe it's coming back to you a little bit and you're, you're wanting to reexamine things a little bit and you hear verses like this and you're like, well, maybe I missed my shot. Maybe I missed my chance. Maybe it's hopeless for me. I want to tell you today that there is hope. There is hope for you right now. And Jesus can do that because what he did on the cross and in the empty tomb is powerful enough to cover anything that you've done and he can always sustain and he can always bring back. And the author here leaves them with a word of encouragement. He goes straight into he's he's kind of he's kind of hit him over the head with some heavy stuff, right? And then he goes into this passage passage of encouragement. I want to offer you this encouragement. 
this Easter Sunday. Very awkward thing about having to preach to a camera is I don't really know who's on the other side. When I can see you in this room, I can know who you, who's here. And I can say to you this with full assurance. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What promises? The promises of Easter. You can rest assured that I see in you, Potter's House Community Church, the fruit of the gospel growing in your life. Even in this time, as I have interactions one-on-one with you, I hear about good things that you're doing for one another. I want to encourage you to keep it up. Let that fruit continue to blossom in your life. Let your good works continue to come out. Not because you're earning your salvation, not because you're maintaining your salvation, not because you're protecting your salvation, but because you realize what Jesus did for you. The fact that it cost him his life, and that payment was received in full, and he raised from the dead. And in that we have our hope, and in that we have our peace. And I just want to encourage you, church, I see this in you. Maybe you're watching in today and and you can say, no, I don't see that in me. I need that. I want that. Turn to Jesus today. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Because you see, the message of Easter is that Jesus is sufficient. And forgiveness for sins is available. And the point of this passage is to not take that for granted. Let the seed grow and mature in your life. What the, the author of Hebrews is saying here is, hey, we need to be diligent to let the gospel fully permeate us, fully work through us. Let those roots go deep. and Let that plant grow tall out of us in order that we might be a blessing. In order that what Christ did on the cross can really have full impact in our lives and in the lives of others through us. And so I encourage you with that this morning. I encourage you with that as we look at Easter and as we look back to the good things that Jesus has done for us. In just a minute, we're going to take of the Lord's Supper together. And this is a time, as I explained on our our Monday, Thursday service, this is a time for us to look back and and kind of reflect on, yes, what Jesus did in, in the full Easter story what he did in his life, what he did in his death, and ultimately what he did in his resurrection. Because that body raised from the dead. That blood flows through his veins again. He is alive. He is well. And in that we have hope. And so as we we take of the Lord's Supper today, I want us to take of it with hope. I want us to take of it with looking forward to the future looking forward past our current circumstances that most of us really don't like if we're honest. But we have a better future ahead of us and we have hope ahead of us and in that we can have great rejoicing. 
So yes, reflect on your life. Reflect on is there, there are parts of your life that you need to get in line? Are there parts of your life where you need to grow? Are there parts of your life where you need some thorns and thistles moved out of the way so that the true fruit can grow? Then spend some time reflecting on that and ask the Lord to work those things out in your life. 